Hi, and welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, my guest today is something of a, uh, well, what would you say, Mel? How would you introduce yourself? Oh, I've got a bit of a long working title, but officially, I think I'm an ethical fashion writer, consultant and digital marketer. And you have a lovely newsletter called... Not What It Seems, which is a monthly newsletter that unpicks the latest in fashion and sustainability. What is your own background in all this? Um, I think, naturally, um, I've always really loved writing and sharing ideas. Um, But what I actually wanted to write about changed a lot through kind of my teens. It used to be dancing, then it used to be music. And then when I got into university... um, I think a lot of changes happen there, which is what happens to a lot of young people. For me, it's so embarrassing and guilty. But when I got access to this student loan, I was like, oh, my God, I can buy all these clothes now that I never used to. I've got all these club nights. I'm going to go to Misguided and Pretty Little Thing and all the brands that essentially I make my living off critiquing now. Um And I very quickly realised that it wasn't giving me a lot of joy and that there was a bigger picture to me. Um, And it just starts with a very simple question of where do my clothes come from? Um, And around the same time, I was having another question that was going around my head was, where does my food come from? And so I went plant-based. And I think when you're in those kind of communities around sustainable eating, you naturally come across very other like-minded communities. And that's where I sort of come across this notion of sustainable fashion and thrifting and secondhand. Um, and it kind of took off from there. I very quickly went cold turkey. So I'm vegan overnight. I stopped buying fast fashion overnight and just really like dove headfirst in as much content as I could read to really like educate myself and a lot of it's so simple and you have to do a lot of kind of self-shame and really think why did I just not ask this before or think about it before of course there's a pair of hands behind every item of clothing I'm wearing but you know out of sight out of mind is a way that so many industries operate and deliberately so um and so yeah then I realized that I wanted to combine my work with what I'm really passionate about um and that's kind of how it started I started blogging um and meeting really cool people online and then I thought actually I just want to put this into like a centralized place and that's where not what it seems was created um almost because the journey that I had gone on and having to kind of overcome so many misconceptions and myths and just really educate myself I found that that whole process was an absolute minefield it was so complicated and it still is you know fashion is such a murky industry such a massive gray area um and it's those shitty fashion brands oh can I swear oh well (laughs) shitty fashion brands that really profit off and capitalize on and benefit from that complexity and from that consumer lack of awareness because then they can feed you anything that they want to because they think it's what you want to hear and if you don't have that kind of facts and knowledge behind you it becomes extremely hard to spot greenwashing and to realize that what you're being told is a load of bullshit so I guess that's where not what it seems comes from where it really is that idea of unraveling everything we think we know but also what brands tell us um and sign a get to the bottom of it and think what's actually going on here 
Now, I see sort of sustainable influences has become a bit of a thing now, uh, quite a few on Instagram and around. And what some of them, well, a lot of them say is sort of do your own research, go to the brand's website, read what they say in their transparency statement and this. I mean, I'm sort of thinking, well, if, if someone tells lies all the time, is that going to be an honest piece of work? Yeah, exactly. Um, the thing is, when you go to these brands' websites, a lot of their sustainability policies will be sort of stationed in their corporate social responsibility pages, pages that are written solely to please stakeholders. Um, and so they're going to willfully omit all of the shitty stuff that they do because that's not going to keep on investors on board. Um, something that I always say is that you wouldn't let lifelong criminals write the law. And essentially, that is what you're doing when you go to their websites. You are reading what they want to tell you, and they're going to only tell the good. And often when they do, it's extremely misleading. It's without context. It's based on studies that are completely inaccurate, or they've never been peer reviewed. Um, And so when your starting point is these websites you're going to just meet a lot of confusing but seemingly legitimate ideas that in reality don't really stand up to scrutiny. Um, And again, it's that idea that consumer appetite for sustainability has absolutely soared. And the way that brands are trying to meet that is by kind of really clinging on to these buzzwords, sustainable, organic, natural, and putting them into capsule collections and being like, hmm, here's us doing our bit. And you see that and think, that's great. Um, The thing that comes off the top of my head and it's the most timely is the H&M and Peter Collab or Peter Collab, um, where you have an animal rights organisation partnering up with a fast fashion brand to create a vegan-only collection. I think it's called Conscious Story or some kind of drivel that sounds good. Um, And there's so many things to unpack there. Um, The idea is that everything is completely devoid of animal ingredients and origins. Now, what actually happens is that you get a lot of plastic-derived clothing, which forms the majority of the collection. And it's been something of a mass rebrand where plastic went plant-based, where it's like, oh, this seems brilliant. This is a vegan or a faux fur, vegan plastic, vegan leather, vegan faux fur garment that actually just contains plastic, which... I mean, in the current cycle, it's probably produced in a in a style that's not going to last very long. It's produced of a shitty quality, which means that it won't last very long in your wardrobe. It probably end up in landfill, or you're going to wash it loads. And what happens then is it breaks down, and microplastics enter the waterways, which then harms aquatic life. Which last time I checked, doesn't sound very vegan friendly to me. Or they end up mass polluting landscapes, which again harms the biodiversity of those that are living there so it's not very vegan but also we brands have this notion of zooming in on sustainability as something that should only benefit the planet and in those calculations very often forget those that actually make the garments the garment workers the cotton farmers and consistently in their defensive um kind of replies to the backlog uh, backlash peter 
continually emphasize but it's great for the animals okay but they're not the only part of this supply chain what about the people um and i mean i could go on about that but there's a whole conversation to be had about the vegan community and how they regard animals in such high regard but don't reserve that same sentiment for a lot of beans and especially people that don't share their same background or skin color that is just a fact veganism has so much white saviorism and racism in it and they there's a lot of ignorance and self-denial in that community and that absolutely applies to the way that PETA have responded to the backlash that they received with the H&M collab yes you could emphasize that it's vegan but it's also essentially fossil fashion it's also made in extremely exploitative conditions where the garment workers are going to be overworked and underpaid and so if you're if only a small there's only a small victory to be claimed there. And let's not forget that, for me, the way that I see these token collections is if, for example, I talk about H&M a lot, but they put out a yearly conscious collection. To me, that's an admission that, yeah, the rest of our range is really shitty. <laughs> like, you're willfully saying that, yeah, the rest of our clothing line doesn't meet the standards, but we'll come out with this tokenistic range that somehow makes the cut well actually yeah you have a small vegan range but what about the rest of it and even so even if somehow they manage to turn all of their collections into recycled polyester and pineapple leather you are mass producing them at a rate that doesn't matter what they're made of what their provenance is because if you are producing them at a rate that the planet cannot cope with that is inherently unsustainable and that is fashion brands entire approach to sustainability is pick and choose what elements of sustainability they want to embrace but then kind of package that as we are now sustainable and unfortunately that is not how sustainability works if it did this crisis would be over very quickly but the reality is that's not how it works and sustainability is an ongoing process it requires a holistic intersectional approach and your take back scheme or your vegan collection isn't nearly up to the mark for that it strikes me that Peter should have known better than to even get into bed with H&M. Mm-hmm. But H&M seems to be awfully naive about what they thought they might achieve with doing that. I don't know if I would use the word naive because H&M, for me, are the most prominent fast fashion brand in the sustainable scene, which of course sounds like an oxymoron in itself. But what I mean by that is that I've never seen a fast fashion brand that is an exploitative, wasteful, polluting brand, because it's not just fast fashion, so willfully mislead its customers and come out with greenwashing after greenwashing campaign and product range that they know, they must know that they're being, they, you know, they're not blind. They come across criticism every single day and yet they continue to dominate the agenda because for them, it just doesn't matter. I think money talks too much. And if there's a small amount of people, because it is, I imagine, in comparison, quite small. I, I mean, I operate in an echo chamber and sometimes I think that maybe we're a little bit further along than we are. But if it's just a small amount of people that are critiquing in kind of a social consumerist environment where a lot of people haven't 
kind of come around to the idea of sustainability and you know be really defensive about it or don't want to educate themselves on it then there's going to be a like a hundred times more people that will buy into it that don't understand the complexities and the nuances and we'll just see it and think yeah and so for them it is just a money-making exercise and it's just a way to stay relevant and so I think this collection there's there I don't think they'd be as naive enough to not kind of predict the backlash but it's almost for them you know like any marketing or any publicity is good publicity I think that's kind of a doctrine that they live by um Peter and I can't speak for for them I just the pure defensiveness in the replies kind of shocked me the there was no humility in those replies and actually maybe that's something we can look at in the future no they were dead set and stubborn on how they were going to respond to it and interestingly they tried to suggest that recycled polyester is better than natural fibers without showing any evidence of how that might be the case and I'm sure I'm looking at your face now there's a fair few people that would probably disagree with that well I think I've got sort of so many comments lined up in my mind now but um uh, this argument about um recycled polyester being better than natural fibers i think that comes down to this higgs index Mm. which is a way of rating fibers and sustainability and water use and all this which is set up by the fashion industry itself so no wonder it's rigged to in their way really yeah that does bother me a lot as well uh the fact that um you can make out that sort of synthetic fibres are in some way better. I mean, I'm not saying all natural fibres are brilliant either, which they're not. But um, I think you were right about echo chambers. Mm. And I think I think this is a massive problem because anyone who's interested in this will seek out the information and it will validate their ideas. But for the hundreds of millions of customers who go fast fashion shopping and you just need to stand outside Primark on a Saturday morning and you're just seeing all the people going in there. I think that is a thing. I mean, H&M have probably calculated the backlash from doing this Peter collection will be massively offset by the cred they'll get among Peter fans who didn't, who weren't maybe H&M positive before. So yeah, let's go for it. Um, we'll annoy some true believers and social warriors, but so be it. <laughs> so and that's sad and i think it's also a case that i mean of the fast fashion brands h&m is kind of the sort of nice one at least the way they portray themselves mm-hmm. compared to the real scuzz buckets yeah yeah i mean like places like she and don't even bother pretending they're very transparent about who they are and they just don't give a shit really about it <laughs> Similarly, uh, the whole Boohoo and the Primark. Uh, I was talking to someone the other day who studied fashion in Manchester and uh, 95% of the fashion graduates go out of the University of Manchester. They just want to get into Boohoo because it's such a great place to work. And it's like, really? Yeah, I mean, that reminds me specifically, maybe because you said Manchester, Misguided put out a documentary last year called Inside Misguided, Made in Manchester, which is an incredibly misleading title, which I'll go into a bit later. But the whole premise of the documentary was look at our glitz, Instagram ready, pink fitted HQ office in Manchester. Look how snazzy it is. Look at all the clothes you get to wear there. Look how cool it is. And 
you know, we have these meetings and these competitions and it's really nice food. And it's like, wouldn't you just want to, it was basically a PR move, like, wouldn't you just want to work for us? Which they created in response to backlash they got for a sweatshop labour scandal that, that they briefly alluded to. Um, and it's that idea, again, that if I was a fashion graduate that didn't know anything about sustainability, I think, yeah, that's where I'm aiming for. But the whole inside misguided made in Manchester premise was so disingenuous because your brand is not made in Manchester. That's where your CEO and your marketing team is based. But you, I think of the, I did a whole article about it, but of the, I don't know, the factories that they have, I think only seven were based in the UK. And most of them were in Leicester where the garment factories tend to be centred anyway. Um, and within the documentary, you only have two to three kind of allusions to that outside world and that further supply chain. One is when um, a buyer tries to haggle down the price of a dress to, I think, £7, of which £1.49 of that is for the SIP, I believe. Um, so you're already, alarm bells are going, okay, but if that's that, and that's the cost of material and it has to be transported. Where's the price for paying the garment worker here? Where does that come from? And then also they get a Chinese supplier, I believe, to kind of restock a previous order and they want it in two days. And, it, you know, there's a there's thousands that they request. Um, and there's a third one, but it kind of escapes me now. Um, and so they kind of do it to themselves. It's like, okay, but you're not made in Manchester. Um, but of course, that's not the story that they wanted to tell. Um, and it's just one of the very misleading ways that I think a lot of people that are into kind of reality TV and that kind of Instagram lifestyle, that would just gone completely over their head. But there were these little instances where you kind of saw the cracks in their story. And, it, and if you do know, you think, mm, OK, well, that's that's where we're going wrong. And they also had this very show and tell um factory inspection and of course it it passed with flying colors and it looked perfect and you had smiling employees and it was well lit and well presented um and it was just so false um and yeah I went on a massive rant about it because the whole premise anyway was female empowerment and when you look at it they have a massive gender pay gap um I think almost 46 percent in favor of men their CEO is a man um and yet it's garment if you're not so the one of the lucky ones to work in HQ, you're probably going to be a female garment worker working halfway across the world. And I don't think the yes queen girl power slogan tees they're producing are going to make them feel very empowered. It's very much reduced to those in the office. And there was lots of fat phobic comments made. And I was <laughs> for me, if I was part of the marketing team, I'd be like, how did you ever let this pass? Because I think this is a PR shitstorm and you <laughs> betrayed yourself in a very bad light. But I looked on the Twitter hashtags and lots of people loved it. And again, they said, I want to work here. And it just goes to show kind of how almost obvious they made it that we're not that great. But it just, people didn't care. They just saw, oh, look at that snazzy photo drop, backdrop wall. I want to work there. It's completely unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, but it is, it, it's unbelievable. It, but yeah, it's so believable. Um, yeah, that's very much the state of where we are these days. Clearly. Um, you mentioned greenwashing a little while ago. Yes, my favourite word. <laughs> <laughs> Does that trigger you at all? 
Yeah, it does. Um, I think that's what I write about the most is greenwashing. Um, and even lots of people don't know what greenwashing is, um, which is essentially a very insidious but prevalent marketing practice in many industries, but I focus specifically on the fashion industry, where brands will pretend to be more sustainable and ethical than they actually are. And all of the kind of marketing dollars that they channel into these really misleading marketing campaigns does not go on actually restructuring the business and creating radical genuine change um and I think anecdotally at least in the last two years I've just seen greenwashing absolutely skyrocket it's almost daily now um which gives me lots of fun material to work with I suppose but I'd much rather that you know the opposite was true um and these brands know what consumers want and so they give them in provide that in very greenwash packages where they tick all the buzzwords off um but they, there's not actually any meaning behind that and it's because of greenwashing that not only are consumers and shoppers so confused but it's that the words that they use have just completely lost their essence sustainability um, I mean I have my own notion of what it means but so many people have differing ones and when there's no universal industry agreed upon definition that creates a whole kind of gray area in which these brands can and do operate where they can kind of change the meaning as they wish to suit them and whatever product ranges that they're coming out um, before them. But having said that, there are changes being made, in, at least on the European stage, which are trying to tackle greenwashing. Um, in the UK, the Competition Markets Agency, one of the government people have come out with the green claims code which will come into effect early next year which essentially sets out what science uh, what sustainability claims have to prove so they have to be scientifically backed up you can't say um emphasize the certain sustainability benefits of a product if they are outweighed by the negatives you can't make certain product ranges look sustainable when the whole brand is not um you can't use unnamed comparisons to make it look like you're better in the market than you actually are um and it's kind of the first time where we really had regulations and guidelines which brands must follow in order to claim that they are sustainable and although I imagine that the fines aren't massive enough to deter you know billionaire CEOs they are substantial and it means that advertising standards agency can get involved and you can be told off and you ha might have to plug uh, your uh, get rid of your ads and you know you might be subject to media scrutiny which we've not we don't really see because it's so, such an unregulated industry that can essentially say what they want um and similarly i believe it was denmark and the netherlands in the eu were also trying to create a scheme which would mean that any clothing shoes and accessories perhaps even textiles sold in the eu have to prove their sustainability claims. And they've also come out with another scheme, which kind of links to the Higgs index, which is that from 2023, 
garments, all garments in the EU have to be labelled with a colour-coded sustainability ranking, which sounds great because it makes it easier for brands to certify whether their products are actually good or not, but it also helps out consumers who are genuinely quite confused, but also their trust in brands is rapidly plummeting because of greenwashing. So it makes that, it simplifies that process, but the problem lies in the methodology in which they have devised this system um, and again, links to the Higgs index because it only takes certain factors into account, which means that polyester, not even necessarily recycled polyester, but virgin polyester, virgin plastic derived materials will rank higher than natural fibres such as cotton and hemp. And they will because the methodology doesn't take into account microplastics, which are inherent to plastic derived materials and a, a big source of plastic actually in our oceans and it doesn't take into the fact renewability and biodegradability because your polyester garment in comparison to your cotton and your hemp garment is going to take a whole lot more and uh, a whole load of 100 years to decompose if you want to call it that in a landfill it's recycling properties are also much less because sure you can take post-consumer plastic waste bottles and regenerate them into recycled nylon but you then have taken them out of the recycling loop and you can't re-recycle them into garments because every time you do the fibers break down and it weakens them to the point where they cannot be recycled again um but the whole methodology doesn't take that into account which is why make the label count a campaign group has sprung up to kind of address that um and they want to take factors in the whole production process in the supply chain can it be renewed does it have microplastics in it uh, a whole load of factors that aren't actually considered in the current eu scheme um so even in attempts to kind of tackle greenwashing you almost <laughs> Though that attempt is, if not misguided, is greenwashed in itself, um, which kind of gives you a clue to how murky the sustainability waters really are right now. It's no wonder people are baffled by it all. I am. I am. You, you, even once you start getting into it and sort of reading about it and sort of think you're sort of starting to understand it, it's just even shittier and worse and more confusing than you could imagine. I mean, the whole Higgs index, you'd think that was something made by the fashion industry so they could make themselves look good. Well, I think it is. <laughs> and how are they even allowed to use it? Yeah. Um, I mean, we had a brief conversation about this already, but it's just an example of one of the ways that Again, we let criminals essentially write the laws and self-congratulate themselves by becoming signatories on schemes that actually aren't mandatory. They aren't legally mandated and there's no real response. Uh, there's no real punishment or incentive to really act on that. And what I'm talking about is in the context of COP26, the UN's fashion charter, which was first devised a few years ago, but was recently renewed, which means that brands now have to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions or aim to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions by 50% instead of 30% by, I believe it's 2030, and then reach, you know, 
carbon neutral net zero emissions by 2050. Um, the scheme is entirely voluntary to do. There's no, even if you signed up to it, it's very much something that you can market to make yourself look good. I'm not convinced by the way it's internally policed and regulated and how progress is measured. Um, it seems like more, whoops, we haven't actually got there yet or we're on our way rather than that being something that is incredibly frowned upon and actually can be taken <laughs> to, to rectify that. Um, but also there's all this talk of re reducing carbon emissions, which is a very valid concern. Um, estimates of wildly varied but um, research came out I believe this month which is perhaps the closest kind of indication of what the carbon emissions of the fashion industry is which is around two percent of global carbon emissions annually um, which is a lot less than the ten percent that the UN used to claim um, which is again an example of misinformation in the fashion industry, which unfortunately is a lot of, which makes it harder to address these problems. But there's all this talk of reducing these emissions, um, but they never take into account that perhaps the, one of the easiest ways to do that would be stop overproducing. I know, such a radical concept, who knew, making less stuff. No one had thought of that before, but this is constantly the elephant in the room that no one discusses. And a delegate for Fashion Revolution actually brought up the issue of degrowth when the charter was signed in a, you know, a very filmed and photographed and talked about event during COP26. Um, but it's such a simple point. How can you possibly reduce your environmental impact if you are wanted to continue to produce at the same rate that you do now? Again, estimates vary wildly between 80 to 150 billion garments a year. But whatever the figure is, I can tell you it's way too much and that we have enough clothes to last us for, you know, six generations. There's too many clothes already on this planet going to waste. But if you continue to produce at that same rate, how could you possibly reduce your carbon emissions? And of course, why would you address that? Because to truly become carbon neutral, you're going to have to prioritise degrowth in your business and you're going to have to kiss goodbye to, to the profits that you rely on. It's not in their incentive, whether that be financial or moral, morals are beyond them, clearly, but there is no incentive or there is no kind of legal mechanism that can possibly force these brands to radically cut back on the items that they're making. And so for all the headlines that they've made, this charter, I, I have my doubts about it making much progress at all. And I think also, rather than congratulate them on kind of renewing the charter and making it even more relevant to reduce even more emissions in the timeline that was previously set, I kind of see that as a failure. One, that you didn't that the original kind of measures that you put in place were too little too late, which is so common of the fashion industry. But it's kind of subtle, subtle recognition that, shit, things are getting worse because we're not actually doing anything. So we're going to need to reduce emissions even faster, guys. But if we've got in that place, in the, we've got that in the first place by these brands producing so much, how are they going to change in time? I just don't think that sadly it's possible in the, at least in the framework that they've outlined um 
just produce less stuff. Like it's not, it's not. But of course they won't, and they'll bring out these recycled polyesters and this vegan leather and all that. But again, it just comes back to well, it doesn't really matter if you are mass producing millions at lightning speed that they can't possibly be up to scratch with the quality needed to last a lifetime in your wardrobe anyway um oh it's just so frustrating but yeah it's just one of the ways that brands can pat themselves on their back for doing their bit without really having to do anything at all it's interesting how after cop 26 uh, greta thunberg has received so much criticism for being angry and dismissive of the whole COP26. Yeah. But really, I think she's right. Yeah. Uh, and you were mentioning um, how um, the fashion industry and, well, the rest of the world are having this discussion about how things can become better. But it's as if they're having two different conversations where the fashion industry is really thinking about how can we keep up the profits so our stakeholders get their bit and everything and let's confuse the issue a bit. Everyone else is concerned about how can we save the planet? And again, you mentioned numbers. I mean, we can't even agree on what numbers this talk about. I know in one of your recent newsletters, you were talking about the amount of water used to produce cotton, which is a number that's, I mean, it's bandied about all over the place. It keeps turning up. Is it 20,000 litres to make a T-shirt? A, a T-shirt and a pair of jeans because water is a really thirsty crop which is probably a misnomer um, because as the cotton, a case study in misinformation, which is a recent report that came out and was co-written by Elizabeth Klein and Marzia Franceschi, Franzi, something, I'm going to butcher her name, I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, but they said that actually cotton is produced in so many water stress regions. So how could it possibly be a really thirsty crop in that context and context is a really crucial word to use in this because that can be true of some areas but if we just say without context that actually fast, uh, cotton is super water thirsty and that it takes so many liters of water that's not true of everywhere and that's not to suddenly say that cotton is without its faults but it's to truly understand the degree of its impact so that you can produce better solutions and so that you can incentivize cotton farmers to farm more responsibly. But if you're just pointing this wagon figure, finger, it doesn't actually get you anywhere and it doesn't help solve the problem because the problem that you're talking about in the first place is not as straightforward as it seems. Um, that report in particular went on to debunk three other claims, which off the top of my head is that Organically grown cotton uses 97% less water than conventional cotton, which was based on a seven-year-old study that has not been um, peer-reviewed and is probably very unreliable. They also disproved that... Let me think off the top of my head. This is where the brain freeze comes in. <laughs> what else did they disprove? Come on, Mel. Um, um, so the report also debunked other myths um, namely that organic cotton uses 97% less water than conventional cotton, which is a statistic that lots of brands have used when they are marketing their organic ranges, which often actually only contain an, a fraction of organic fibres and not 
100% organic as you'd probably expect. And the other disproven statistic, which is one that I've used loads, is that um, conventionally grown cotton uses up 25% of the world's pesticides, which again, when you try and locate these origin of these facts, you're really sent on a wild goose chase. Um, And it's often been cited in a newspaper, which then kind of credits a report or an organisation with that. And then when you go to look for that, it often doesn't exist in the first place. But because it's been quoted in The Guardian, activists and organisations and experts repeat it um, till it kind of becomes this impenetrable kind of status of gospel truth where you wouldn't even think to question it um and that's obviously how I picked it up and if you are lucky to locate the study there's such a research gap in sustainable fashion and fashion generally that it's probably outdated it's irrelevant or it's method it's methodology is just extremely flawed anyway and it hasn't been peer-reviewed um but the issue with kind of dispelling these untruths from the online realm is that you need to kind of offer alternative compelling research but there often isn't any and so these facts will continue to be parroted um and while they're parroted by well-meaning people, they're also very quickly picked up by exploitative brands that use those to their benefit. And because they've been kind of branded about so much in documentaries and podcasts and Instagram infographics, they seem good and they seem legitimate and they seem sound facts. And so if you see that same statistic quoted in one of these greenwashing campaigns, it gives it a full sense of legitimacy. Um, and the misinformation problem only seems to be growing and if you can't diagnose the exact nature of a problem it becomes a lot harder to devise effective solutions it also contributes to kind of the trivialization of fashion um and lots of especially kind of scientific led experts don't want to touch fashion with a barge pole anyway Um, and it doesn't help our cause if we can't produce reliable information and then we defend the right to use those statistics that are often very false Um, and yeah and another thing that makes it extremely difficult to really understand and calculate the precise impacts of the fashion industry is that the fashion industry does not operate in isolation it's linked its supply chain is so complex and linked to so many other industries you know leather is a byproduct of the meat industry items need to be flown or shipped over how many air and sea miles which adds up garment factories need to be powered by coal um Cotton is grown alongside other crops and is very much linked to the agriculture industry. And so when you try and untangle exactly what role fashion plays, it becomes incredibly hard. So I guess in some ways we underestimate the sheer impact of the fashion industry because we don't take into account its other byproducts and links to other industries, which would probably make the picture a whole lot worse. Um, which is why we need to tackle these global issues. But as long as misinformation kind of reigns in the mainstream, fashion doesn't have the reputation that it, or kind of the respect that it needs to really get people that do know what they're talking about on board to try and solve this in whatever way is 
possible. Um, and yeah, misinformation only really aids the greenwashers and maintains the status quo of a notoriously opaque industry where transparency is very few and in between for lots of brands. Um, and so unfortunately, even myself, who has called cotton a water thirsty crop, I don't know how many times, I am aiding in the problem and I'm helping greenwashers. And that that reality makes me feel a bit sick. Um, and so, yeah, when I say fashion's one big grey area, I can't really overstate how true that is. Um, and it is this sheer murkiness and this grey area that allows so many exploitative shitty practices to happen pretty much under the radar because there's no compelling research or regulations or legal mechanisms in place to stop them from doing that. There was a number you mentioned a little earlier, which I um, have been sitting thinking about now, because there's been this sort of thing about uh, the fashion industry being behind uh, 10% of the world's um, carbon emissions, <laughs> which then means that, oh, that's worse than the cruise boat industry and the aircraft industry yeah. together, which makes it seem like, oh, the fashion industry really big and bad. But then you mentioned a recent report has put them at 2%, mm-hmm. which kind of sort of turns it all on its head again, because then suddenly it's not the big bad industry. Well, it's just a little 2%, isn't it? So maybe we don't need to go after them after all. Yeah. Um, and that's what some people say. They say that we know it's bad. So does it matter how we quantify that? It, regardless, it's bad. And actually, if it is less than that, are we not just excusing fashion because we have other big issues to focus on? Um, I don't see that as the case. I know 2% probably sounds like nothing, but you know, the fact is just our clothing can produce that much of an impact on the earth. I think that's really massive um, for something that we don't think of. And we do think we do tend to think of clothing as a human right, but it is having such a sheer impact. Um, but yeah even then I imagine that is a global estimate and they did look at the Higgs index um, but had to make supplementary calculations but why it's really good as well is because the report recognises its own limitations um, and it really contextualises its findings and where exact how exactly it calculates that because the UN said 10% um, but if you kind of dig a little deeper they're not really sure what evidence they are using to support that claim. There was then the 8%, um, which was branded about, and lots of people credited that statistic to the Danish Fashion Institute, who have since distanced themselves entirely from that um, statistic and said that actually that, that doesn't come from us and we don't know exactly, but we do know that it's big enough to care about and act upon. And then earlier this year, there was another report which kind of assess the carbon emissions of the eight biggest polluters in the world. And fashion was estimated around 5% for carbon. Um, and it was joint third with small, fo- small fast-moving consumer goods, um, which offered a bit more, we were a bit closer. So it's like, okay, perhaps fashion is the third most carbon-polluting Um, industry um, which of course doesn't take into account it's the other greenhouse gases it produces 
but I've, I I do understand people's concerns and reservations with kind of undermining previous statistics that make the fashion industry look worse than it is. Um, but I kind of think that's the wrong way to frame it anyway. And that, you know, just as we need to address the climate crisis, that's not something that you do in the abstract so many industries are involved in that and I don't think that takes away from the fact that we need to address fashion simultaneously as we do address the agriculture and the fossil fuel industry um yeah I, I just don't see that as a valid concern really I just think it's something else we need to address I'm sort of thinking that if you know something is shit it doesn't really matter whether it's a little less shit or a little yeah. more shit it's still kind of shit yeah i very so, much abide by that logic too <laughs> um another matter you briefly touched in that was the, the whole word sustainability and the definition of it i used to have a, a nice sort of tight small little definition of it something that can keep going yeah say an apple tree in my garden, it will keep going. But then you sort of go to Wikipedia and you type in sustainability and you're just swamped by page upon page upon page. And you admit, it's no wonder you, it's impossible to find out how much pollution the fashion industry makes because it's such a complex system. Mm-hmm. And I think when using the term sustainability, people just sort of fill it with whatever they want to put in themselves. Yeah. So H&M might say, oh, we've got um, wooden spoons in our canteen. We're dead sustainable. Mm-hmm. While someone else will have a completely different definition. I mean, does that, can we even use the word? It's a tricky one. I think, yeah. I mean, for someone that uses the word sustainability a lot, um, kind of because of the areas that I work in I don't actually really believe in the word at all and I think it has lost all meaning um and so my advice to brands would be not to say we are sustainable but to kind of quantify that and say that we only use organically grown cotton and that we you know, we only ship locally and that our garments are entirely produced in a London living wage factory, um, which are what brands like Birdsong do. They don't need to say that they are sustainable because they prove it. They they prove what they are and they they say what they do. Um, They do what they say, rather. For me, I think it becomes a lot easier to, I know what I don't mean by sustainability. Um, So for me sustainability is something that you do rather than what you buy um what I mean by that is that we've got into a situation where I'm very (laughs) crudely kind of oversimplifying it but where the processes of colonialism and capitalism have got us into the mess that we are finding ourselves in but then capitalism comes along and sells itself as the solution buy a bamboo toothbrush you are saving the world um throw away your perfectly usable plastic toothbrush substitute it with a bamboo toothbrush yeah you're saving the world okay but what about that perfectly good plastic toothbrush that's now rotten in the landfill and could still probably be used for a few months that to me is not what sustainability is i think it's really disingenuous 
for the issue to sell itself as the solution. Um, but I also think that it then raises issues of privilege because if you say that every time you purchase something, you are casting a vote with your wallet, some people's wallets will always be bigger than others. Um, and although the idea of fashion you know, sustainable fashion being classism doesn't really hold true. There are conversations to be had about how sustainable fashion isn't accessible for everyone for size reasons, for financial reasons. And, you know, they're perfectly valid criticisms. Um, But buying clothes isn't going to solve the problem because that means that creating that demand, more clothes are going to be produced um, so it's really tricky where we've got in a situation where producing more, producing more products, bamboo toothbrushes, is somehow going to get us out of the mess when it's the mass production of things that have created those impacts in the first place. And I think it's really interesting that a lot of people, when they start to get interested um, and curious about sustainable fashion, one of the first questions they ask me is, what brands can I shop from now? Um, and I'm like, no, <laughs> no, that's, that's not the essence of sustainable fashion. It's a very well-meaning, well-intended question. But I think it misses the point that actually, it's such a cliche, but the most sustainable garment is the one already hanging up in your wardrobe. You should shop your own wardrobe before you shop elsewhere. You should mend and repair and care for your clothes so that they can live as long as life in your wardrobe as possible. Um And I think also, I guess I've kind of naturally brought myself onto the cost question. But it's, for me, it's not that sustainable fashion is expensive. It's that fast fashion is dirt cheap and it's undervalued the entire fashion industry. Um, And actually, even if you need to buy from fast fashion, which people do, and to be clear, those that kind of critique the overconsumption of fashion are never critiquing those from a low income who by their very nature are sustainable because they can only buy what they need and they use it until the end of its life, which is, in, you know, is very sustainable. Um, but people love to say that and speak on behalf of the imagined poor, those people being often middle and upper class just to, you know, kind of justify their constant Zara hauls. Um, like I always sorry I'm not very good at sticking to points but for me they they say that but actually what they don't take into account is that we could just buy less yes you could buy from Primark but buy less and only buy garments that you know are going to fit into your current style and that you will re-wear. You're automatically saving money when you reduce your fashion consumption anyway. There's also secondhand, which again comes with access issues, but it tends to be a lot cheaper. And then there's also the cost per wear argument, which is if you buy and invest in a piece that's going to last longer. For example, you could buy a £5 vest top from Primark or you could buy a £25 vest top from a more sustainable brand. The second one from the more sustainable brand is likely to last longer. It's not going to fade. It's not going to lose its shape. It's going to wash well. um, And it's going to be a piece of longevity. And so actually, it means that you'll be able to wear it more. And so when you divide the total cost of the garment by how many times you wear it, it probably is a lot cheaper in the long run than that garment from 
Primark, which will wear out very quickly, and then you'll have to replace. And then you find yourself trapped in this cycle, which fast fashion creates. You know, it's very convenient then for us to all be pointing the finger at each other and self-policing others' style, which is not what I used to be. Definitely behavior I used to engage in you know I would write these articles and see people my friends would read them and then come home with a H&M bag and I'd find that really frustrating but now I feel that that energy that I could use and exert on kind of informing them or even you know guilt like um blaming them could be better reserved using towards and directing towards the real culprits which are the government who failed to regulate and act and the fast fashion brands and luxury fashion brands the exploitative brands are allowed to run wild which again is something that I think that sustainability for me encompasses it's not about how we can change the world as consumers it's how do we change the world as citizens because we don't all have massive wallets but we do at least in the global north have voices we can lobby mps we can tweet brands who made my clothes we can raise awareness and create change in a way that doesn't revolve us revolve around us making a purchase because i don't think that is the essence of sustainability i think the other aspect of sustainability for me which i've touched upon is that it really requires a holistic intersectional approach You aren't sustainable when you tick off a few buzzwords, when you produce a capsule collection that is made from recycled polyester that comes with its own problems, but that range only accounts for 5% of the overall inventory that that brand will be producing that year. Or that capsule range is created, but the clothes within it are, you know, produced and churned out in their thousands. Um, my approach to sustainability has to involve both the planet and the people and take place across the entire supply chain from the growing of raw fibres to the manufacturing to the garment production in factories to then sending that off and selling that shops to then marketing it but also end of life which a lot of brands don't actually take into account they're very much okay we've produced it and we've sold it now what happens is up to you and so you have things like H&M's take back scheme where the onus is on the consumer to take more clothes in but then for the clothes that you take back in you're awarded a five pound voucher to use more clothes, which will then be taken back to the take back scheme. And where these clothes actually are taken to, we don't know. We don't actually know. Um, they're probably not recycled. And if they're not sent to landfill, they're probably cast off to previously colonized countries that have to deal with our cast offs. Their own textile industry is stifled and they are basically swimming in the waste that we created. Um, But also, for example, ASOS came out with a circularity scheme. Um, But in their calculations of whether the garments could qualify as circular, it only had to meet two out of eight of the circularity principles they developed and um, borrowed from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. But if you imagine a circle is made up of eight little segments, as soon as you take out some of those chunks, it doesn't really look like a a circle anymore. It's basically a linear line of, again mass produced then sent to landfill 
Um, and so that was one thing. But even more concerning was that the whole idea of circularity is that you produce garments in the mind that they can be recycled and kept in the loop. And then after they've been used, that's when you take them and bring them back. But they took no responsibility for post-consumer waste. They didn't have a repair scheme. They didn't have a take-back scheme or give us your clothes once they're used and we'll recycle them back into the collection. There was none of that. Um, so the whole circularity premise was missing from the start. Um, and that's just one of the ways that brands claim that they're being sustainable by you know, achieving one small part of sustainability. But sustainability is so much more than that. I mean, there's the argument that nothing can be 100% sustainable anyway, and no fashion purchase would ever be without its sin. Um, but there's a level of transparency that comes with brands like Birdsong, um, who do so many amazing things, but, for example, ran a campaign saying we're not sustainable until the big brands are because for all of their efforts, they're being trampled upon by carbon, carbon guzzling, greedy giants that kind of everything they do is then overshadowed and kind of rendered redundant by what these other bigger brands are doing. Um, so sustainability for me is a process. It's very much ongoing. It has to interweave garment worker rights, environmental rights and animal welfare rights. And I really want to zoom in there and emphasise the social in sustainability. So many people only think it's something purely environmental, but I think, sure, you can reserve and preserve and maintain planetary resources, but is there going to be anyone left to use them? What are you sustaining and who and what are you sustaining? Because Oftentimes, these so-called conscious ranges were produced in very exploitative conditions that don't sustain the livelihoods of the humans that made them. And so for me, it's not just about sustaining, you know, planetary life and biodiversity. It's very much sustaining the livelihoods of those who make our clothes. But far too often that that social aspect is entirely removed from sustainability calculations. Um, and so these brands can say that they're doing everything right and that they're producing all these eco-friendly ranges. But I don't care if it's made out of pineapple leather. If the person that is making that is exploited, is underpaid and overworked, is trapped in a cycle of poverty, is a woman of colour who is sexually harassed or even killed at her workplace. For me, that can never be sustainable. Um, but that is something that is very much overlooked and it's the norm for sustainability to only be conceptualised in environmental terms, in planetary terms. Um, but for me, that people aspect is just as if not even more important when we talk about sustainability you can draw your breath now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um uh, there was so many questions i had lined up during all that um uh, there was just one comment i wanted to make i saw something recently made of apple leather mm -hmm. which sounded brilliant i mean oh making leather out of apple skins or whatever until you noticed when you started reading about it, that it was a few percentages apple skins mixed with the usual plastic stuff. Yeah. But it was great if 
for consumers who didn't weren't paying attention really much, but uh, just wanted to to buy into it. Um, this point in the podcast, you're probably wondering where are the ads, and I have to admit, I hate ads in podcasts, so I don't have any ads. But if you'd like to support the pod, there is a link in the show notes to uh, buy me a coffee, where you can make a small donation to the costs of running the podcast. If you don't want to use it, don't bother and just continue enjoying it. You were on a tangent about 10 minutes ago (laughs) where I wanted to sort of get into... There's been an upswing recently in the sort of slow fashion mm-hmm. segment uh, with lots of um, lots of companies, small companies, um, sustainable, of course, using sort of conscious fabrics, um, very much local, um, a lot of them are direct to consumer, which I think is is really good, and it's sort of cutting out the big the big uh, companies. Where do you stand on that? Sorry, I'm going to be completely honest. I signed out a little bit there. Can you say that again? <laughs> uh, there's been an upswing in uh, in sort of small sustainable com- uh, companies now uh, within a sort of slow fashion banner. They're making stuff in smaller scales, maybe to order, direct to consumer, um, better fabrics, all very sustainable and so forth. What do you reckon on that? Yeah, I really admire the brands that kind of navigate the really fine balance between we need to sell items to make a profit and for this brand to be financially viable, but we don't want to pressure our customers into buying for the sake of buying. Um, I sound like I'm sponsored by Birdsong. But they are let's, really... Let's be transparent. <laughs> yeah, they're giving me marketing dollars, I wish. If they're, if they're listening, Sophie, if you're listening, you can sponsor me anytime. Um, Birdsong are one of those brands that thoughtfully market their clothes. And they achieve this in so many ways. I think their made-to-order model, which used to be kind of the cornerstone of fashion before fast fashion took over um and so we are seeing lots of brands return to that but the made to order model reduces waste as much as possible um because it is made specifically in mind of the customer in terms of dimensions but also because it goes through such that personalized process the person on the other end buying it will have to think that they really want it to be made um and those same brands use um, zero waste practices which I think again is a bit of a no- misnomer but they try to repurpose all offcuts maybe into a face mask or into a scrunchie um, and it is really tough because at the end of the day your brand needs to make money to survive um, but there are lots of brands that are v- really embracing transparency and want their customers to really think about whether they want to commit to this purchase. Um, And so those brands that are really forthcoming about that, I just have my utmost respect because it is a really difficult line to tread when you're aware that 
in some ways you are part of the issue because for all of the goods that's being done I question whether we need any more sustainable fashion brands um because in some ways they're all slightly adding to the issue and sometimes my friends are like why don't you come out with a range that's like perfect and ticks all the boxes and I'm like I couldn't think of anything worse (laughs) I just don't think I need to get involved because there are far too many clothes already and we just don't need any more um and so brands that can put their hands up and be like, look, we're not without our sins. We obviously, we do have our own small, very small in comparison, but small and existing nonetheless, environmental and social um, blueprint that's kind of offset by the fact that they produce and market so intentionally. And of course, the people that make them are being paid fairly. And it's a very... It's quite fair throughout. Um, and so, yeah, I I really admire the brands that don't want to you to buy for the sake of it, that don't bombard your inboxes with countless discounts and flashing lights of sales now, limited time only. Um, and, you know, Black Friday's coming up. So I think that's it's a really relevant conversation to have because it's one of the most popular online commercial if not the most popular online commercial event of the year this is where so many brands make their most profits um and so to compete with that to make money how do you be a part of black friday culture but not be a part of it? How do you offer a discount, but then don't want people to buy for the sake of it? Because there's a lot of buyer's regret. Um, There's a lot of planned obsolescence. There's a lot of waste. Um, But brands can do it. Um, So Sancho's, who are a ethical fashion brand based in Exeter last year, um, had, I believe, pay what you can, um so on the day you were able to choose what you would pay for that garment um, because a lot of the issue with black friday is it completely undervalues garments makes them entirely disposable and almost worthless um and so that kind of maintained that birdsong had different brackets of discounts that you could choose and if you were in a position to offer more um and it was you were financially secure enough to pay more for the garment then you could opt for that um there was a vintage store called One Store Scoop who donated 10% of their profits to a charity. Um, and so there are ways of going about it that allow you to kind of reap the rewards that everyone else is because it does make commercial and financial sense to be involved, but not in a way where you are just promoting endless, mindless consumption. Um, and so so fashion... I guess paradoxically can be a part of that. There are Fashion Revolution have come out of a campaign, which they also ran last year, which is just blanket say no to Black Friday. But they too recognise that that's not always realistic because a lot of people on lower incomes rely on these sales. And also people save up um, and want items that they know they can wait for to get slightly discounted. And I don't see the harm in that at all. Um, but I think, yeah, it, it, it's a really, it's a really difficult one, and so I admire brands that even try to address that um, 
and still abide by the principles of slow fashion. It's interesting the angle you took there because consumerism is something that I've been thinking about a lot and the way that how can we even resist the marketing campaigns? It's become such a science. There's so much big data. You've got Google, Facebook, Apple, all of them conspiring to sell us what they think we need. Yeah. I mean, how can we as humans resist this? Um, it's a question that I've had to ask myself. I've actually asked myself more because I'm exposed to myself now. But I found myself almost tempted and lured by it since I've downloaded TikTok, um, a seemingly surprising place to be marketed. Um, but it's, I guess, similar, different in format, but similar to Instagram, that it's very much look at how cool I am. If you buy the clothes I'm wearing, you will also be cool, um, which is a myth. Um, but I've had to be a lot more mindful of how I use TikTok because it makes me feel like I need things that I absolutely don't. And so I have I have kind of general advice that I would offer people, which is unsubscribe to all of the emails um, because they're only there to try and get you to buy, luring you in by discounts or even a, oh, don't worry, we reserved your basket or you didn't finish checking out. I'm like, that's probably for a reason. <laughs> um I would do that. I would also, social media is such a big thing that I would only follow people that empower you to love the clothes that you already own and don't kind of sell you this myth um, where if you buy the clothes that I wear, you'll suddenly have this great lifestyle because it's just not attainable. Um, they're probably photoshopping themselves they're being sent these clothes for free they're being sent on holiday for free so if you base your idealized self on that you're never going to be fulfilled but then it's that cycle and it's like okay now I need to buy this and those influencers are so involved in the trends that they have a lot to say for fashion consumption and you know it's as easy now as a few clicks that you can see it buy it and there's no thought process there you just do it on impulse and it's a very kind of impulsive culture so I wouldn't I wouldn't follow um fashion influencers or brands on social media because again their one you know joint goal is to get you to buy um I've taken the personal decision that I don't follow any brand on social media even the brands that I truly love because for me although there's conversations and debate to be had about whether social media is actually that social because it's pretty fucking divisive. Um, I do want to kind of return to the social essence. I don't want, I'm not on social media to be marketed to and to be made to persuaded to buy shit I don't need. Um, and so I've unfollowed all brands to kind of remove that persuasion, persuasive element and that impulse um, so that I can try and make it more of a social place where I can see what my friends are up to, um, even though the Instagram algorithm is against everyone now. <laughs> so I, I would do those things, but it's 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 so impossible to like completely exist in a vacuum outside of fashion marketing because it's in the magazines, it's on your phone, it's on the billboards, it is everywhere. <laughs> 
And so I hate that so much of solutions that are marketed as the solution to sustainability lies with the individual when statistically they're not to blame. Though, of course, that's not to exonerate us and be like, don't do anything. Again, it's like on us, okay, you can't escape it. Here's how you can change your mindset. Here's how you can detach yourself from fashion FOMO and remove yourself from trends and not build your entire self-worth on what you're wearing and how stylish you are, which is a process and it takes time. Um, And so, yeah, it's like so many things in sustainable fashion it's not clear cut and I can't just be like do this and you'll be fine um it's so hard to navigate and I have to myself really be in tune with what I'm doing what I'm seeing what I'm consuming um and regularly kind of check in and being like how are we doing like have we fallen you know because I remember I wrote once where I don't go into fashion shops at all because I don't need to because I choose not to personally buy from there um but I think maybe a year into kind of my no fast fashion journey maybe two three years ago my mum wanted to go to I think Primark or H&M and I went with her and I saw this skirt and I bought it and had I not been in that shop had I not seen it on the mannequin styled with this other um item I wouldn't have bought it I mean props to me I still have it I still wear it so I was right but I don't feel good about it at all and it was because I was in that shopping environment that I felt pressure to do it because I was like oh I imagine I rationalized to myself that if I don't buy it now maybe I won't be able to buy it um and when am I next going to find myself in a shop I never am and it's kind of sad that I had to justify myself justify my purchase which is probably a sign I shouldn't have made it in the first place um but it's that impulsive shopping experience is completely translated online as well and so it's really hard to escape it whether it's you know like Sarah's once it's gone it's gone mantra or like even I have this idea in my head of like the Ikea maze effect where you have to pass all the products and you have to see them all before you check out just to make sure that you haven't missed anything that you could possibly want and I feel like that's a very much a principle that happens online because the ads even I because I research so many shitty brands they feature in my ad space all the time um and they'll haunt you they'll be like I know you looked at this skirt when you're feeling a bit sorry for yourself at midnight three weeks ago are you sure you still don't want it it's so clever um, and so unfortunately you just got to be a strong-willed person essentially to to not buy into it oh gosh <laughs> I, I i feel really sad that just the fact that you bought a skirt and then you're sort of living in shame forever after yeah you probably you're probably ashamed of yourself every time you wear it as well i mean what does that say about us it's yeah, terrible i did like a confession post on social media near at a time because I just felt awful I thought how could these people listen to me if I bought a skirt from a first fashion shop um but if we all thought like that none of us could be involved in this conversation do you think it helps to see or to, to really be exposed to the sort of dark side of things um there was a film from Ghana recently mm-hmm. uh, showing the massive amounts of western clothes being sent there and 
I think about 85% just went to the landfill in the town, which was completely full. Uh, I saw something, was it yesterday, about uh, Chile, where there's this desert full of waste clothes. And then I noticed uh, recently the in Norway, it's the Salvation Army doing the charity shop collection things mainly. And I think about 90% of what they collect is just immediately shipped off to Eastern Europe or whoever wants to buy it unsorted. Yeah. Do you think sort of being exposed to these truths might help people more? It's a tricky one. Um, I think that, unfortunately, when the very survival of fast fashion depends on this out-of-sight, out-of-mind mentality, and that is on which it thrives, how do you resolve that? Well, maybe it's bringing that to the forefront and making it see. And I think also we're so kind of desensitised to things that to get people's attention there has to be a shock factor. And so if you're going on it purely, will this grab people's attention and make them think twice, then yeah, then it definitely has its place. Um, but also just so many people don't know about it. Um, and so it is such an effective tool in improving and increasing consumer awareness the only thing I would say which is something that Aja Barber brought up um brilliant woman who recently came out of her debut book consumed she put a post up on um social media which I'd never thought about before but it's kind of this trauma porn that we see with garment workers it's like how many times do we need to see this footage of these poor garment workers who are mostly you know women of color be exploited to then have to act it's almost kind of like we have this not pleasure that was not the word I would use but it's like we need to constantly watch this to reaffirm our values to then kind of set us back on course that this is what we're fighting for when we shouldn't have to see that to act these are human beings um, and there's such a massive disconnect um, between us and who made our clothes. So, yes, there are ways of visualising it in a way that doesn't completely render garment workers as these victims to be looked upon. There are ways that you can do it that doesn't involve that. Um, but I think that yeah we need to we do need to visualize the issue because if I briefly return to the cost argument clothing is seen as a human right and I don't mean the right to basic clothes I mean the right to buy whatever shit you want and consume on average 58 garments a year how can that possibly be human right um and they use these you know, arguments of classism, but then they conveniently remove perhaps the most oppressed from the equation, which is the garment workers. And so I don't understand how it could ever be our right if it infringes on the rights of others. Um, but people think that they're entitled to, uh, you know, it's typical of Western societies and to think we're entitled to these endless mileage of clothes and the latest clubbing dresses not realizing that 
someone is exploited in the name of those purchases, but also sustainability is just about buying less anyway. And then it would be probably a lot more affordable for you. Um, so, yeah, I think we do need to raise the visibility of garment workers. But again, that raises moral implications because you shouldn't speak on behalf of them. You shouldn't, you know, you should, shouldn't, you should give them a voice, but it shouldn't be your voice that overshadows theirs. You should give them the platform to present their cause in the way that they wish. And the thing that comes to my head is the issue of boycotting, because I personally, for my own sense of morals, don't choose to buy brand new essentially at all if I really do it's because it's a now because it's a well-researched informed decision but I buy basically all of my clothes secondhand um but if you speak to garment workers lots of them don't want a mass boycott or fast fashion stores or the the shops that they their factories are supplying because that directly impacts their livelihoods um um, you know, that's an argument I've heard before. Um, people saying that, uh, oh, we must support fast fashion, because otherwise, how are the Bangladeshi workers going to get paid? And that strikes me as being related to something else. You mentioned trauma porn and how we're not affected enough by seeing shitty stuff to act on it. And I think this is, again, like that garment workers statement. I think this comes from the marketing it does. I think it does. And I can't, you know, I can't quote someone in particular. But what I think the point I'm trying to make is that they're definitely, you know, we definitely have to centre. Okay, I think I can acknowledge that there will be garment workers that don't want you to boycott without me then saying so that you can buy fast fashion without thought I think they are two separate things I know I know that might play into marketers hands but that's very much not what I'm saying I just focus my efforts on other things that people can do perhaps more as citizens and as activists to implement change and that it's not my position to judge other people on where they choose to spend their money that's not me saying that we should not all boycott fashion it's something that I it's one of those things I continuously debate in my head and this, the kind of conclusion I've had to come is that I choose not to do it but I'm not going to make that as my one thing that I campaign for um and you know perhaps I am guilty of doing the thing that I'm trying not to do but the point is that we should listen to garment workers and if we are to address them and visualize their plight then they should be the ones that determine that narrative. Mm. I'm just sort of thinking that if I was a garment worker making clothes for a really shitty brand in Bangladesh and being paid poorly and so forth, I'd be kind of keen for that brand to go bust and then a better brand could come in and pay me a living wage and but make it's a nice not factory. That, but it's not that simple. <laughs> the point is <laughs> that's their only totally livelihood. Complex. And then, you know, if, if we, for example, if you regulate, um, and introduce laws which protect garment workers, a lot of the times those fashion brands will just move to other countries which do have lax labour laws. Um, and so it's so horrible to say because I don't believe in the argument, well, it's that at least they have a job. I think I would want the world for them so much more than they do have. But I would imagine, a, you know, a, 
from what I've read in the past, this is your only livelihood and you don't want to lose that. The fear of being fired, you know, is, and the reality of being fired is catastrophic. And so for the case of boycotting would seem to directly impact their livelihood, even though they don't want to be in the conditions that they are in, if that makes sense. I think that couldn't boycotting the brand also make them pay attention and pay their workers a living wage? I don't think we've seen much evidence of that, no. I don't. That's pretty sad. Yeah. It, it, it's really catch-22, like trying to improve the livelihoods of garment workers. Um, no, we've seen, I mean, H&M and made a promise that by 2018, 150,000 of its garment workers would earn a living wage, and there's no evidence of that. Um, and we have seen time and time again these label scan labour scandals where brands have been exposed for paying garment workers as little as £2.50 an hour. And what do they do? They cut ties with the supplier. They blame the supplier. They say, we don't set wages, it's them. And then another brand takes its place and works with that supplier um, or they go to another country entirely um, to places where those sorts of things are unregulated. Um, so it's really difficult because you would think beyond the moral imperative from a marketing perspective, if you've been called out for not paying your garment workers a decent livable wage, that you will, to gain better publicity, then pay that and shout about that. But we don't see fashion brands doing that because they can circumvent it in so many ways that they don't have to do that to still make money. From your echo chamber and being hugely involved in all this and all the bleak shit we've talked about now, (laughs) do you see any hope that things might change? It's a question I ask myself a lot, but I think I have to. Otherwise, what's the point of me being here? What's the point of me trying to help people understand sustainability more um, and try to demand better for garment workers and demand greater accountability if I don't see things changing? You have to cling on to hope, otherwise your actions are rendered meaningless. I don't think hope, I don't think change will necessarily come in the way that I want it to, which is international legally binding agreements and regulations, um, because it's only on a global stage, the stage on which fashion operates, that if so many people were involved, that we could change this. But the sheer complexity and logistical difficulties of getting everyone on board and agreeing to the same goals is so complex. And so I do think that there are these small changes that do bring me hope. The Pay Up campaign brought me hope when so many brands were forced to pay back through sheer um, consumer demands to pay back the garment workers that they had refused since the onset of the pandemic. Um, And so there are small victories in that. There's the Garment Worker Protection Act that passed in California, which makes it a the brand the legal guardian, those responsible for the working conditions of the garment workers in their supply chain that legislates for a minimum wage, um, which you'd think things were in place in something that was seemingly so democratic, but it's not. And so there are those small scale changes. Um, 
And there is, once you cut back against the greenwashing, there, are, there is good things. Like I find hope in the Green Claims Code. Um, a lot of people would say, why do I focus on greenwashing? Because it's only a small part of it. But I think it derails so many conversations. And yeah, you can't, as long, once you cut back all the bullshit, you can start talking about what's really going on and devising solutions. And so I don't think at all that regulating greenwashing is going to help garment workers per se. Um, but it does clear the way to focus on these other things. And so I think small changes are coming and every victory should be celebrated. But I think progress is extremely slow and fragmented. But as more and more people come on board, then there's hope that things can happen and things can speed up. And I have to have that to keep going on. Yeah. I think so too. Um, I see we're coming up for an hour and a half now. Um, is there anything you'd like to mention in closing? And how do people find your newsletter? I will put a link in the show notes as well. Um, you can find my newsletter by either typing in not what it seems. Seems is spelled S-E-A-M-S. I think I'm like fourth on Google. There's also an S-E nail polish with the same name, so I rank a bit lower. <laughs> or you can go on Substack, which is where my newsletter is hosted, and search for me there. Okay. Any last final message of hope and encouragement? Um sustainability is incredibly confusing it's a minefield do not beat yourself up for getting things wrong I am not perfect I think as this podcast has demonstrated I don't know everything um I have to be really open to changing my mind on things I thought I knew and I think we should all be open to changing our minds on what we think we know about sustainability and involve as the sustainability industry does too excellent thank you very much for be my guest today mel thank you and um bye-bye yeah And that was all for this week's episode of Garmology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Thanks to my guest this week, Melissa Watts. You can find her excellent newsletter that unpicks the latest in fast fashion and sustainability on uh, Substack. It's called Not What It Seems, with seems as S-E-A-M. If you'd like to get in touch with me, my email address is welldresseddad at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram as welldresseddad. And uh, my blog is on the web at welldressedad.com. If you'd like to buy me a coffee, there's a link in the show notes. If you'd like to um, suggest a guest, get in touch, just feel free to mail me. Uh, And I'd love to know what you think of the pod. Drop me a review on Apple Pods if you like. Otherwise, see you next week. Bye-bye.